Okay, the first verse of chapter 1. Look at it in your Bibles with me. I, I want you to see this. Remember the beginning of this book. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in Mark's mind, the coming of Jesus is the coming of who? The Son of God, right? The Son of God has come. Now, what would the Son of God declare? Well, for that, look at verse 15 in chapter 1. You have it right there in your Bibles. Jesus came and said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so the Son of God has come and he has declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And for that kingdom, one of the first things that Jesus did was he began his apostolic group or he recruited four disciples to follow after him. And we saw that uh, this last week. But here's the question. If Jesus is the Son of God, which to them would have meant that he is God the Son, if he's God the Son who has come to earth to establish God's kingdom, what would that mean for the power structures that were already in place here on earth? In other words, what would Jesus' presence here on earth do? Would it collide with anything? Would it disrupt anything or dismantle anything? And in our passage today, we're going to look at verse 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, we're going to see Jesus' authoritative collision with that which is anti his kingdom. So he's come, he has his kingdom, the things that he collides with right away will show us that which is outside of his kingdom, and it will show us what his kingdom is designed to to repair. And specifically this morning, we're going to see him collide with three specific things. We're, first, we're going to see Jesus collide with the invisible forces of darkness. Okay, secondly, we're going to see Jesus collide with which, what for him was unnatural brokenness in humanity, so sickness and disease. And then thirdly, we're going to see Jesus collide with unholiness inside of people, sinfulness inside of people, and, and we're going to see him as the one who confronts all of these structures and is able to repair them and bring them into a place of rightness with God. Okay, so that's what we're looking at this morning. What does Jesus collide with as he brings his kingdom here to earth? So the first one that we're going to look at, number one, he collides with these invisible forces, or you could say invisible forces of darkness. And for that, we're going to look at the first passage. We're going to see three episodes today. The first episode is in verse 21 to 28. So let's read the whole thing together. It says, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, verse 25, rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, the man, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, or came out of the man. And they all, verse 27, were amazed, so that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, let's sort of retell the story before we bring application into our own lives. First of all, it takes place in a town called Capernaum. Did you see that there in verse 21? A town called Capernaum. Now, last week I talked to you about the Sea of Galilee. Do you guys remember that? Remember Doug and his review of the Sea of Galilee, four and a half stars? He was there on the lake with a famous rapper. Remember that guy? Okay, so we saw that last week. Capernaum is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, a couple of miles west of the inlet of the Jordan River on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And at Jesus' day, it was a fairly prosperous town. 
And the reason for that is because of the thriving fishing industry combined with the fact that many roads crossed through Capernaum, roads which led to other regions in Israel, but also led outside of Israel into Gentile territories. So there was a lot of trade, taxation, business that was taking place in Capernaum. So it was a fairly thriving city at the time of Jesus. It's not today. You could go to Israel and it's basically just the ruins of Capernaum. And in fact, the ruins of this synagogue that Jesus preached in can still be found today in the city of Capernaum, the top layer being from the fifth century, so after Jesus's time. But then as you go down even further, you find the black stone that they would have used during Jesus's era. And that's the the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus actually went into and preached uh, on this day. So Jesus here begins uh, serving and operating and working in this city called Capernaum. Now, why did he go to Capernaum? Well, I think the reason is very, very simple. Before this episode, the other Gospels teach us that Jesus went into his actual hometown. It was a city called Nazareth. He'd grown up there. And he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, opened the scroll to Isaiah, and read prophecies from the Old Testament that declared the Messiah. And then he said to the people that were there, people that would have known him, friends and family members, he said, this scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he was declaring, in a sense, to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And when the people in Nazareth heard it, they couldn't believe it. In fact, they vehemently disagreed with Jesus so much so that they wanted to kill him. And so they brought him to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff, but God protected him and he just sort of walked out in the, their midst. It was kind of like a Jedi move. He just walked out of their midst and was delivered and saved. And with that, he went down to the Galilee, recruited four disciples, and made their hometown, Capernaum, his new hometown. Part of the reason I point that out is because the Bible teaches that it is not good for man or woman to be alone. And Jesus, of course, was not going to be married, but he, in his aloneness, went and collected these four disciples in part so that they could be together. It was not good for him, now that he was rejected by his hometown, to operate in isolation. And so he brought these four onto his team. Okay, so they came to the synagogue, and when they got there, Jesus was invited to teach a sermon. It was the Sabbath, that was the day that the people of Israel would gather together in synagogues all throughout Israel, and they would open up the Bible and they would study scripture. And when rabbis traveled around Israel, uh, the local leader of the synagogue would invite the rabbis to share scripture with the congregation that had gathered. And maybe Andrew and uh, Peter and James and John had vouched for Jesus. Maybe Jesus's ministry that he'd been, do, been doing for about a year had become known in Capernaum. But for whatever reason, Jesus was given permission as a guest rabbi to speak the word. And notice what it says about his message. In verse 22, it says that everyone was astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished at his teaching? It says it there because he had authority unlike the scribes. You see, when the scribes of that era shared scripture, they would read scripture and then quote other people and their interpretations and traditions about that scripture. But when Jesus came along, he did not say, this is what Rabbi so-and-so said or Rabbi so-and-so said. Instead, Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, they quoted others, but Jesus quoted himself. As God in the flesh, he was teaching them with authority like they'd never heard before. Okay, in the middle of his sermon, though, there was a, sin, there was a, a man in verse 23 with an unclean spirit. And this guy cries out. And it's a, it's a freaky thing that he says. If you look at it there in verse 23 and 24, he said, What have you to do with us, talking about a demonic realm, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So that's like a tiny bit distracting in the middle of a sermon that you're trying to deliver. This demon-possessed guy gets up, he says this thing to Jesus. I'm sure some of the people there that day were thinking like, where is the security team? These guys need to deal with this guy. He's causing a disruption. Okay, this brings us into something we're going to see repeated throughout the book of Mark, the demonic realm. 
Mark has already talked about Satan at this point in his gospel. Remember, Jesus went out into the wilderness, and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan. But now he talks about an unclean spirit. And it's about a dozen times that Mark is going to refer all through his gospel to unclean spirits, and and another about a dozen times that he's going to refer to an unclean spirits as demons. So he'll use both phrases interchangeably, demons and unclean spirits. And there are various theories as to how demons came into being or where the demonic realm came from. And when we get to chapter 5, we're going to spend a study looking at a man who was severely demon-possessed, and that will probably be a better place to talk about the different theories regarding where demons come from. But the one that is worth mentioning, at least at this point, as a teaser for what will come, is the possibility that what they were were originally angels who followed a chief worshiping or worship leader angel uh, in his rebellion against God because he was lifted up with pride and fell from heaven. And that that fallen angel became Satan himself who took a a section of the, the angelic realm for himself and that as a punishment they became disembodied spirits who began to roam the earth. Some of them were not given freedom to roam, it tells us in Jude 6 and 2 Peter Uh, 2 verse 4 because they did not keep their proper domain and so they were locked up in darkness until the time of judgment at the end and the interesting thing is that you know as we read this it kind of confronts us like really demons is this really a thing but even in our western world many people believe in the demonic or in the supernatural in in 2019 the organization YouGov did a survey of Americans and discovered that across the board and across generations, over four in 10 Americans believe in demons and more more than four in 10 uh, Americans believe in other supernatural beings, that they exist, that they're part of our planet. And one of the things though, as we look at this, that we will begin to, to question as we go through the Gospel of Mark or really any of the Gospels, is why were there so many demons present in Israel at that time? I mean, we're going to go through this, and it it kind of almost at some points appears like there's a demon on every corner. You know, just like Jesus cruises around, it's like, oh, another demon. And he just kind of, Mark writes about it like, you know, that's just what we were doing a lot of, casting out demons. And it leaves kind of the modern reader to go like, have I ever interacted with a demon? Like, I've met some weird people in my time. You know, maybe I have, you know. And, and it kind of brings those questions up. Okay, why was there such a proliferation of the demonic during the life of Jesus? Okay, let me give you a few thoughts about that. First of all, Remember where he is. He is in Israel. The people of Israel were called by God to be the delivery mechanism for the Messiah who would be the savior of all nations. They were supposed to walk with God. And for over 400 years at the point that Jesus came, they had not been walking with God. Now, when they're not walking with God, that means they're not in the light. That means they're walking in the darkness. And in the darkness, all kinds of practices would have been allowed to fester. And it's likely that they began opening themselves up to dark or mystical practices that would have invited a darker dimension into Israel at that time, opening themselves up to an undesirable world. But a second thing that we should consider is that God had been very clear all throughout Scripture, where the Messiah would come from. He had said at the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, that someone was going to come that would crush Satan. And then as Scripture unfolded, it became clear that that deliverer would come through Noah, would come through Abraham, would come through Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David, would come through their line and would be born in the city of Bethlehem. So it makes sense that Satan would, in a sense, congeal his forces in that region, knowing full well that this would be the region that eventually produced the Messiah who would come to crush Satan himself. But I think the biggest reason of all is that when John came onto the scene, it's like this power was unleashed. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is coming. And then when he's arrested, Jesus picks up the mantle of that message and is present. Jesus, the son of God, is here on earth. That 
would seem to be the biggest reason why the demonic realm would be stirred up. Jesus is here because Jesus' presence meant war for the demonic realm. You see, it says in 1 John 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus comes, it's like he's collided with this invisible world, and just his mere presence brings it out in some disturbing ways. Okay, so it's no surprise then, because of Jesus being who he is, the Son of God, God the Son, that he delivers this man from his demon. And notice how Jesus does it. It's just so awesome how he does it. You know, there's no, like, incantation. There's no, like, well, hold up, me and my guys, we got to go pray about this for a while. We got to do a special ceremony, you know, turn the lights down. There was nothing like that. Jesus just looks at the man and the demon within him and says, be silent and come out of him. There's just authority with Jesus. There's just command with Jesus. There was no long, drawn-out ceremony. It was just Jesus. He's authoritative. But I think we should also note that this man was not a believer. The Bible doesn't teach that a Christian can be demon-possessed. When you become a believer, the Spirit comes to live inside of you. He makes his dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit does not share that space with anything demonic. Okay, After seeing this man delivered, it says in verse 26 and 27, the guy was convulsed by the demon. He cried out with a loud voice. He came out of him, and everyone was amazed. And they all responded and said, what is this? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. That was their response in verse 28 and 27. And then in 28, the fame of Jesus spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay. That's, that's kind of the story. That's the recap of this portion of the story. The, the big theme, though, of this whole movement, wouldn't you say that it has to be the authority of Jesus? You know, he comes onto the scene and he's teaching, and what are they impressed with in his teaching? Wow, he teaches with one, like one who has authority. This demon-possessed man, the demon begins to speak, and he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and the Holy One of God, And many people think that actually when he said that about Jesus, he was trying to gain authority over Jesus because there were beliefs in that day that through magic you could gain control over someone in part by saying their name. But if that's what he was trying to do, we see it doesn't work with Jesus. The demon tries to get authority. He doesn't get authority because Jesus has authority over him. So authority over the demonic, authority in his teaching. And and I know that our modern age would love to deaden us to the reality of spiritual warfare. And I know also that there are whole Christian ministries who have gone into errors and into excess when it comes to the subject of uh, spiritual warfare and demons and things like that. But look at this scripture from Ephesians 6 verse 12. This is about us. Paul said, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now just just think about that for a second. I don't know if if you did I don't know if you signed up for that or not. You know, I know I read that and I'm like, well, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't know that's what evil rulers and the dark world and evil spirits and the heavenly places. But what I want you to see is that even though this is the reality that we're in, Jesus is the one who wins the victory. It's a it's a war for which we need the authority of Jesus, a war that only Jesus can win. Now I don't want to make too much of this. Because I think that it's possible for believers to blame way too much on the invisible realm, way too much on powers of darkness, way too much on the devil, you know, and just say like, well, that's the devil and that's the devil. I think it's very possible to make way too much of this. But I also think that there is a deadly rationalism that says people's problems can always be reduced to the purely psychological, social physiological, or circumstantial. 
But here we see that this man was in a spiritual battle. He was in a spiritual war. And I think the more we come in line with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' understanding, we'll lean more upon him in prayer and we'll see more of the transformation that we'd like to see. So the first thing, though, that we're seeing here is that Jesus collides with this world and he wins the victory over it. He's the one, we must confess. He's the one who wins. Okay, but the second thing he collides with is found in verse 29 and following, and it's this. He collides with natural brokenness. So let's read it in verse 29 and following. It says, and immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, verse 31, and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, verse 32, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Okay, this is presented by Mark as something that happened on the same day as the episode in the synagogue in the morning. Uh, they, they leave the synagogue, and they go to the house of Peter, the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. This would kind of be like our modern equivalent of, hey, after church, let's go out to lunch, or after church, let's go out to dinner, and let's just spend a little time together. It's just that at church that morning, they had had a Bible study that had been interrupted by a demon, and then Jesus had cast out the demon. I imagine these four guys just looking at each other like, what just happened? This is wild. I didn't, did you see that? Was it just me, you know, kind of thing? And so there they are in the house of Peter. Now it tells us that Peter uh, was a married man. That's the intimation because he had a mother-in-law. And we don't know a lot about Peter's wife, although later in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Peter's wife became a believer and that she kind of co-labored with Peter in the work of the Lord. But here, Peter's wife's mother was sick. She's just there. She's got a fever. She's bedridden. And they tell Jesus about her. You know, she's sick. I don't know if they were expecting Jesus to heal her or not, but he went to her and he took her by the hand, verse 31, and lifted her up and the fever left her. She's just miraculously healed. The first healing that we've seen here in the Gospel of Mark. And her whole healing is evidenced by what she does in response. Notice it in verse 31. She gets up and she began to serve them. Okay, now, this isn't Mark's way of making a very gendered kind of comment. You know, this isn't his way of saying, like, that's right, a woman's place is in the kitchen or something like that. That's not what he's doing, and if you're that guy, please stop. <laughs> because the word that he uses for serving, this is not his idea of what a woman does. This is his idea of what a whole person does. He uses this word for serving to describe Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he's actually already used this word in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus came out of his wilderness temptation and the angels came and ministered to him. It's the same word. They served him much like uh, Peter's mother-in-law was serving that group there in the home. In other words, in Mark's idea or presentation. It's whole people who serve. When you've been touched by Jesus, when he's made you whole, you start caring for other people. You start ministering to other people, and that's what Peter's mother-in-law did on that day. Okay, but, but, but after that, sundown came, it tells us in verse 32. And at sundown, it's like the whole community just shows up at the door of the house. Now, why was it then that they showed up? Well, during the Sabbath, they were only allowed to travel a certain distance. So when the sun went down, Sabbath was over, so there were no more travel restrictions. So they're just going all over the place. They're collecting sick people, demon-possessed people, and they're just coming to the door of this house. And what follows is this huge time, Mark tells us, of healing and deliverance. He uses phrases like, they brought to him all who were sick. The whole city was gathered. He healed many, and he cast out many demons. The, the idea is Jesus is there, everything's coming at him, and he can handle all of it. There's nothing that he can't fix. He can deal with everything. 
Okay, so, so that's kind of the recap of this part of our story this morning. Okay, for, for this section, you know, in the first section, I, I said to you, you know, here's Jesus. He's colliding with the, the powers of darkness, the, the invisible powers of darkness. But in this section, I think it'd be good for us to remember how strange sickness and disease is and was to Jesus. In other words, every single thing that he confronted that day, it was strange to him. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who created the heavens and the earth. By the word of his power, he created and sustains his creation. And when he made what he made and spoke it into existence, he created it in perfection. No disease, no sickness, no brokenness, no disability. He did not make his creation in that way. But through our sin, death entered in. And some of the vestiges of sin are things like disability and sickness and disease. It's just our species has been broken. We all know that we are going to die. That, that every one of us, our lives, our bodies will at some point expire. And when Jesus came onto the scene, he hated all this brokenness. I mean, there's, there's even a point at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry where a family he was close with, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, one of them fell sick, Lazarus, and he died and was put into a tomb, buried for a number of days. And when Jesus went to visit the family in Bethany outside of Jerusalem, he saw them weeping. He saw them broken over the loss of their brother. And when Jesus saw it, saw the grief that people were experiencing, he wept himself. Not because he was sad because Lazarus was dead. He knew what he was about to do for Lazarus. But he was broken over the despair that people were experiencing and feeling as a result of this portion of the fall. You see, when Jesus came... All of that brokenness was unnatural to him. And here, he's presented as having power over all of this unnatural brokenness. He fixed every ounce of it that day. Everything that was brought to him was fixed. He healed it all. Okay, now, now this brings up the question, how should we view what Jesus did? You know, or maybe I could say it in another way, does Jesus still heal today? And if he does, why do those healings seem to be so rare? Okay, here's what I would say about that to help remind you of why Jesus came. What was Jesus' message? You know, I quoted it to you or showed it to you a little bit earlier. Verse 15, the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus came along declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. So we saw him already collide with demonic forces. Now we see him healing the sick at this house. Both of those events are meant to show us what his kingdom is like. He's, came, he's come to banish the powers of darkness, and he's come to set humanity's brokenness aright. In other words, when we see the healing ministry of Jesus... Our first move shouldn't be to say, I wonder if I can get a healing today. No, our first move should be to say, praise God, in that moment, we got a little glimpse of Jesus's kingdom. And apparently his forever kingdom is one where the devil has no territory and healing and brokenness and death have no quarter. Jesus is going to deal with them completely. That's why, in part, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He was trying to show us, this is what I have in store for you. I'm the firstborn from the dead because I am going to give all who believe in me that ultimate and final resurrection. Now, that said, I believe that God does and can heal people today. I don't think that healing is for everybody who wants it here in this life. I don't think that healing is for people who just have enough faith either. The reality is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you're his, I guarantee you one day at least, you will be healed. All of us will be healed one day in eternity with him. But 
On the other hand, I know that the Lord can heal right now, and I've witnessed that sometimes he does. And quite often I'll hear that kind of testimony from trusted missionary sources who are serving God in places in the world where a healing would actually be of great benefit for the preaching of the gospel, which is so often how Jesus healed when he was here on earth in order to preach a message. Okay, but my point today is that Jesus saw all these diseases and sicknesses as unnatural brokenness that his kingdom comes to ultimately fix and repair and banish. Okay, let's go to our final scene, though, in verse 35 and following. It says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Okay, now, now my, my assumption, I could be wrong about a lot of you guys, but my assumption about a lot of you is that there's a good amount of people here that are not morning people. Okay, because this is the 11 o'clock service, so you guys chose to come a little bit later. I know some of you were serving at the 9 o'clock, so you definitely are a morning person to be able to do that. But here's Jesus after a full day of ministry, synagogue, the house, outside the house, late into the evening. The next morning, what does he do? Very early in the morning, it says, while it was still dark, he went out alone to spend time in prayer. Now, please remove from your mind some kind of image that tells you that Jesus did not fatigue, that he was somehow not tired because he's the son of God and God the son. No, he took on human flesh. He was fatigued. That was a a long day that he just experienced. And the next day, he gets up early in the morning and he goes out to pray. He knew that he needed to get alone with his Father in heaven. Now, when you read the different Gospels, some of them highlight Jesus' prayer life more than others. Probably the Gospel that highlights Jesus' prayer life the most is the Gospel of Luke. He portrays Jesus as going into the wilderness all the time, often withdrawing to go into the wilderness to spend time in prayer with his Father. But Mark actually only talks about Jesus' prayer life three times. And every time Mark talks about Jesus' prayer life, Jesus' whole ministry is in, um, danger is probably too harsh of a word or strong of a word, but it's in the balance. For instance, the third time Mark mentions Jesus praying, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does Jesus say to the Father? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Father, if there's any way to get the kingdom without the cross, let's do that. But if, but if this is the only way to get the kingdom, I submit myself to your will. In, in the middle of his ministry, there's the one miracle that all four gospels, outside the resurrection, all four gospels record only one miracle, all four of them, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that, the loaves and the fishes? Well, John's gospel tells us that after Jesus fed the 5,000, the multitudes began to try to take Jesus by force and make them their king. I mean, the guy could make bread out of thin air, basically, so they're thinking to themselves, you'd be the perfect king, and we're just going to make you become our king. And at that moment, Mark tells us that Jesus escaped from them and went to the mountaintop to spend time in prayer. Now here, he's intensely popular because of the miracles, the casting out of demons, and what does Jesus do? He goes out into the wilderness to spend time in prayer. You see, Jesus didn't want to be known as miracle worker or as healer. He needed to be the one who preached the gospel of the kingdom. He would not become king by avoiding the cross. And he would not become king through miraculous feedings. And he would not become king through the working of miracles. No, he would become king through people believing in him and the message that he preached. 
That's why he responded like he did when the disciples came out and found him. Notice that Simon and his little search party, the, the word for search for Jesus, it's like an aggressive search party word. That's the word that you would use if you were describing this like aggressive search party, just hunting somebody down. They went and found Jesus in the wilderness, and they're like, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. The intimation is, Jesus, things are going great right now. I mean, you got to like ride the wave. You, you did so good yesterday. People are coming. They want to know about you. They want to see your miracles. Let's just go back to Capernaum and repeat what you did yesterday. But Jesus said in verse 38, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. In other words, this is why I stepped out of eternity, is to go and preach this message to all of these towns. This was Jesus' way of saying that he wasn't a miracle worker first. He wasn't a deliverer of demons first, but he was a preacher. He, he wanted to go to these other little towns. That's what the word towns means, just these little outposts of humanity that littered that region because he knew the only way he could really save people was with his words, his message, the truth. It wasn't going to happen through miracles. It wasn't going to happen through deliverance ministry. So with that, he goes and he goes through all Galilee and he preaches in the synagogues and he casts out demons. And Matthew's gospel tells us it was right here that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. I actually have that written in my Bible in the gap between uh, verse 39 and verse 40. Sermon on the Mount right here. But before I move on to the last little snippet of our, time, our text today, I just want to tell you that I think Jesus' experience out there in the wilderness praying with his Father, I think it can be emblematic of your experience as well. Here's what I mean by that. You know, Jesus came as the perfect Son of God, and even he had to go out to the wilderness to spend time with his Father to be reminded of his ultimate purpose and identity who he was, who he is. And in his father's presence, he was refreshed. This is the reason I came out. So when they come out and say, let's go back in, he's like, no, I just spent time with my father in prayer and I was refreshed in who I am. And who I am is not primarily miracle worker, but preacher. And we've got to go to these next towns and get that job done. And I think we also need constant reminders about our purpose and our mission, and our identity. You know, who are we? What are we for? What makes me, me? What makes you, you? And when we ask these questions, we have a lot of things that can distract us from the answers or give us false answers. But I think a lot of times it's times alone with God where we actually can help retain a clear mind about our purpose in life. We can remember who we are, what's needed. It all becomes clear when we're with him. Okay, but let's read the, the end of our story this morning in verse 40 to verse 45. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling. And he said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Okay, so after Jesus goes on this circuit preaching, a leper comes to him. Now, leprosy in our day, we actually often refer to it as Hansen's disease. And it, we're, th we're thinking of actual leprosy when we say the word leprosy. But by, by the time of Jesus, a lot of different skin conditions and sicknesses and ailments had getten, gotten the label leprosy. And this guy comes to Jesus with his condition, and he says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. The thing that's interesting to me about what he says is that he doesn't say, if you will, you can heal me. 
He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Why did he ask for cleansing and not for healing? Well, lepers in that time in Israel were banished from the community. They were labeled as unclean. Their uncleanness was ceremonial, meaning they couldn't go to the temple to worship God, and they had to actually be separated from the rest of humanity, the rest of the people in Israel. They even had to announce as they walked along the road their uncleanness by shouting, unclean, unclean, lest people come into contact with them and contract their leprosy and it begin to spread throughout the nation. So with all that said, it's easy to imagine why the leper wanted Jesus to make him clean. He's just tired of being cut off from God, from others, from everyone. He's alone, he's isolated, and he wants to be brought into relationship with God and brought into the community once again. And this is, it's, it's beautiful how Jesus responds. Because we, we know, because we've read the life of Jesus, we know that Jesus can speak a healing if he wants to. Do, do you know that? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't always have to touch people. There was a man with a withered hand one day where Jesus just looked at him and said, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretched out his hand and it was made whole. Jesus spoke a healing. Jesus could have done that. He could have looked at this guy with his leprosy and been like, oh, you know, I think this is one where I'm going to speak a healing. But instead, he reaches out and he touches this man. He touches him. In their way of thinking, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. But everyone was surprised because Jesus isn't made unclean, but the leper is made clean. This is exactly what the leper wanted. He, he, could, he could now go back to the community because Jesus, who Hebrews teaches us is our great high priest, declared him clean, declared him fit for the community. And then Jesus did this really cool thing. He wanted the priests back in Jerusalem to have a clue or a proof or an evidence that he was the Messiah the scriptures had predicted. So he tells this guy, he says, hey, don't tell anybody except for the priests in Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem, tell the priests because in Leviticus 13 and 14, the priests had these rules on what to do with a leper who got healed of their leprosy, a ceremony, a process, sacrifices that they would offer so that the priest could declare them clean. Now, priest Jesus had already declared this leper clean, but he wants the leper to go down so that they'll say, like, now, who did this to you? Well, this rabbi named Jesus up in Galilee so that the priest could have a proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And I just imagine those guys that day just like, you know, a leper shows up and he's like, I, was, I had leprosy and now I'm healed. I've been made clean. Do the thing. And I just imagine them being like, man, we haven't read about that forever. Just dusting off Leviticus 13 and 14. Like, we haven't had to use this one our whole priestly careers, you know. And, and so there's Jesus sending him uh, his way. But the one request that Jesus had was that the man not tell other people. And all throughout the passage and throughout the book of Mark, Jesus does this. He's, he's told demons to be silent so far in our passage. He now tells this man to be silent, not to announce it uh, to other people. And the reasons seem very practical for why Jesus did that. When he does it with demons, in part, it's because if you're the Messiah and you want people to know that you're the Messiah, you don't really want demons to be the one breaking the news <laughs> for everybody. Secondly, Jesus, like I said, didn't want to be known as a miracle worker. He wanted to be known as a man with a message, a preacher who was bringing in the kingdom. And the de demonic realm would have announced the miracles, the people being healed would have announced his healings rather than his message. But he also just wanted to be able to continue to travel freely and do ministry. But because this man did not listen to Jesus, notice it says in verse 45 that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here's what I want you to see as we wrap this up. I want you to see how the leper and Jesus traded places. You see, the story began with Jesus on the inside. Everybody loves him. He's famous. He's popular. 
They're surrounding him. They're thronging to him. And the leper is on the outside. He has to declare himself as unclean. He can't be in the community. He's banished. But through this turn of events, their roles are reversed, so to speak. Jesus now is on the outside in the desolate places. And the leper is received. He's on the inside. He's been given or won community by Jesus. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is because, you guys, this is who Jesus is. He came to confront and collide with the forces of darkness and our unnatural brokenness, but he also came to collide with, and we'll see this especially next week, our unholiness. He came to collide with that which separates us from God. And he takes our uncleanness into his own body there upon the cross so that we might be clean. He was crushed so that we could have life. Look at how Isaiah speaks or prophesies of him. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. The idea is that shame and guilt and dishonor and embarrassment and failure and sin, everything that makes us feel unclean, outside, unworthy, disconnected from God and disconnected from others, Jesus came to deal with so that he could trade places with us, so to speak, so that we could be brought in if we believe in him and if we trust in him. Okay, but to wrap up this whole section, I just want to repoint you to verse 38. Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. You see, Jesus wants to give humanity victory over the demonic forces. Jesus wants to fix our unnatural brokenness and sickness and disease and all of that. And Jesus wants to deal with our uncleanness, our spiritual uncleanness. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that the way to access those things is through his message. It's through what he says about himself. And the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9, that we must believe that, that if we openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. In other words, it's through hearing his word, believing his word, that we are then brought into this beautiful thing that Jesus wins victory over for us. Okay, let me wrap up by just giving you six applications, and then I'll let you go. Number one, I think a great application is that we should know the power of Jesus' name over dark spiritual forces in every time and place. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, it, it's the name of Jesus that is powerful. It's his identity as the Son of God, God the Son who came. It's not through spells or magic or any such thing. It's through the name of Jesus, belief in Jesus, confession of Jesus. So if you ever get yourself in a situation where you're feeling some of that oppression coming into you, say the name of Jesus, call out to Jesus, declare Jesus. Number two, I think an application of this, we're beginning to look at the demonic realm and all of that, is that we should never experiment with quote-unquote spiritual practices that are not found in Scripture. You know, healing crystals, chakra balancing, manifestation, meditation, you know, things like that. Some of you have no idea what those things are, but some of you are familiar with these things. These things are part of the created order, but God is trying to bring you above concentration and worship and centering yourself upon the creation, but to bring you to your creator. These things, in, at, at, at the least, are a distraction and at worst are connected to demonic doctrines that will only dissuade you from him, dissuade you from God. So don't experiment with those things. Uh, we're given a whole book that tells us how to pursue spirituality, how to pursue God, and it's right here in Scripture. We don't need to go beyond that. Number three, pray for healing. It's okay to ask God for healing, sometimes in your own life, sometimes in the life of others. Like I said earlier, I believe, you know, as a, as a 
Christian man, I believe that every believer that I've ever prayed for will one day find ultimate healing in Jesus, because we're all going to get new bodies, and I can't wait to have mine, I can't wait to see what yours is like, they're, but they're going to be free of, you know, all brokenness and sickness, but there are times that the Lord will break in and give us a glimpse of his everlasting kingdom in the here and now, and it's okay for us to pray for that healing. Sometimes that healing just comes through the modern sciences that help us discover medicines that can bring healing into our bodies, and sometimes it comes miraculously by the Lord, and so we can ask the Lord for that. And one thing you can do if you're very sick is to call for the elders of the church, according to James chapter 5, and we will, you know, after Sunday service or Tuesday service or even during the week, we'll anoint you with oil, according to James 5, and pray for you that God might bring a healing into your life if that's his desire for you. Number four, trust in the future resurrection. And so often we're looking for the here and now, for it to happen right now. Like, I want healing now. I want all this stuff now. But you have to remember, Jesus came to be resurrected to lead us all into his great and final resurrection. So just remember that. Trust in that. Number five, you know, if Jesus went out and spent time alone with the Father, then create time and space to silence the noise so that you can hear your Father. You know, just... Try to carve out some space or some time in your life where you're going to go and just spend time with your Father in heaven to hear his voice as he speaks to you in the word and, and directs and leads and reminds you of who uh, you are. And I know sometimes we talk about this age like it's the most distracted age ever and stuff like that, but I, I want to share a little secret with you actually because so many times what we'll say is, you know, the distractions like the notifications, my phone won't stop, the texts keep coming through, the notifications are all over the place. And it really is true, you know, uh, we have focused so much of our communication and so much that could distract us right there onto our phones. I mean, this current generation, the word boredom is like not a thing because as long as you have one of those, how could you ever be bored? There's just so much that you could get into. But there's a really cool secret weapon because it's kind of like all condensed into this one little device and it's called the power button. It's really amazing. You just activate it, it shuts the whole thing down and all of a sudden it's like people are like, I have no idea how to get a hold of them now, you know, because I could not go to them. I can't, it's all texting, that's the only thing I could do. So now, you have a chance to just shut it off from time to time and go out and be with the Lord. Number six, and lastly, don't believe the enemy's lie that you are outside. If you're in Christ, you are inside. I, th I, I Frankly, I just see this happen to a lot of people who feel like they're different in the body of Christ. They feel like no one else is like them, and they feel like they are outside the community. And a lot of times there is a tr some truth to it where it's like a church needs to do better to reach out and to include those who feel marginalized. But I find sometimes it's just the voice of the devil himself who is speaking into someone's ears, you don't belong there. You don't belong with those people. Those aren't your people. And you are different. You are outside. When the Lord really has said, no, by my blood, you are in. You are inside. So by faith, believe that. Don't believe the enemy's lie that you are outside. All right, Lord, thank you so much for your word. And we pray that as we think about these three things that you came and collided with, we ask, Lord, and pray that our hearts would be fixed on you, our minds fixed on you, uh, not only throughout this week, but just throughout life. When we see these areas of brokenness, that we would know, Lord, that you came with your kingdom to heal them all. We, tr we trust in you, Lord. We believe in you. And we thank you for doing this for us. In Jesus' name, we pray together.